Welcome everyone, this is Islam for Christians, episode 97, Biblical Figures in Islam, part 16, New Testament, Mary, part 2. Among various Christian traditions, it's well known which Christians have the highest reverence for Mary. Unsurprisingly, that would be Catholics, for those who don't know. Now, Catholics are seen as extreme by Protestant sects, but the Catholic Church just has an extremely high Mariology, um, which means they exalt her in a way that other traditions do not. There is the famous Hail Mary prayer, which I mentioned in the first episode. And that prayer is one of the first prayers memorized by most Catholic children, if nothing else, because it's so short and easy to remember. Now, that prayer doesn't contain much that Protestants would actually disagree with. The main issue would be that it's a prayer that is exalting a human being rather than Jesus, who was human as well, but also divine, whereas Mary was just a human. The point is that Mary has a different place among Catholics, and for Catholics, she is a major power and an influence in heaven. Mary has appeared to many Catholics throughout the centuries. She is just a huge part of the Catholic sensibility. The entire doctrine of the Immaculate Conception holds that Mary was actually free from original sin. Now that is high praise indeed. Now, Catholic Mariology, Mariology meaning basically theology about Mary, it is often considered extreme from the outside. Catholic doctrine insists not only that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born, but that she remained a virgin forever, even though she had a husband. And even though Jesus is rumored, of course, Catholics and many other Christians would say incorrectly, but rumored to have brothers and sisters. Of course, Catholic doctrine holds that these people, like James, for instance, they were actually other relatives of Jesus, uh, cousins, for instance. The idea is Mary had one child and she had sex zero times. That's the doctrine. And among Christians, this is the highest of Mariology, the highest insistence on Mary's physical purity, so to say. But if you step outside of Christianity, there actually is a group that goes even beyond that, a group that insists on an even purer Mary, an almost ascetic version, a female version of John the Baptist, really, only better. Um, so this group that reveres Mary so much is called Islam. Orthodox Muslims, they would contend that even Catholics are insulting the purity of Mary. Now, how? Because they say Mary had a husband. Even if he was basically accepting a lifetime of celibacy, Islamically, Joseph cannot exist. Joseph is not real. And that became the Islamic version. So why is this? Well, for one, because God's book 
says so, <laughs> that being the Quran. Um, but if you're looking deeper, there's a certain sensibility at play, almost an assumption that Mary was actually above being married. Mary was too good for marriage. <laughs> it's funny how that sounds in English, right? Now, in a tradition like Islam, where marriage is the backbone of the sexual ethic, how could marriage possibly be a bad thing? Now, for any woman other than Mary, it wouldn't be. But, of course, Mary, Mary is different. Just think about this for a second, that in a traditional society, a woman, Mary being obviously a woman, would be subordinate to her husband. So in that context, what man could possibly claim dominion over Mary? It's ridiculous, right? Mary could have a protector, but Mary herself should be subordinate to no one but God, and maybe her son at a later time, obviously. But the idea that Mary would take orders from some guy named Joseph just sounds a bit funny to Muslim ears. So that's the first thing. And then there's the second. It's a bit dicey. It's hard to talk about something that is implied but never explicitly mentioned. But I'll go there anyway. You know, why not? Maybe I'll dance around it a bit, but we'll go there. This is about what would usually happen between two people who were married and together all the time and living in the same house and who genuinely love each other. What would be an inevitable action that could happen between two people in this situation? Now, I don't actually want to say it, so I'm going to sort of semi-chicken out here and use a movie reference because this idea, it actually reminds me of a line from the old Kevin Smith movie called Dogma. Now, warning, warning, warning. If you are a pious Christian or a pious Muslim, I really do not recommend watching this because it flirts with what many people would consider to be blasphemous nonsense. Although, actually, that's probably too generous. Actually, it, it, it is definitely blasphemous nonsense. And the theological thought is on par with, like, the ancient Visigoths. It's not great. You will learn nothing useful. But, of course, it's a comedy, not a religious statement, I think. But seriously, it does have some funny moments, but it's mostly a dumpster fire of ignorance and awful theology. Uh, and not family-friendly, for sure. But it did have one memorable line, delivered by Chris Rock, who is playing an angel. And he gets at kind of what I've been hinting at. He said, Mary gave birth to Christ without having known a man's touch. That's true. But she did have a husband. And do you really think he'd have stayed married to her all those years if he wasn't getting, you know, the nature of God and the Virgin Mary? 
Those are leaps of faith. But to believe a married couple never got down, well, that's just plain gullibility. You see that? I still chickened out. I wasn't actually going to say one word in that. Um, that's actually, God, the older I get, that, that, that is one insanely offensive movie. You know, but, you know, 20 years ago when you're young, you just, you don't notice those things as much, but man, that's awful. Anyway, the idea here is this gets at what the Muslim objection is to the three-person holy family. And it is thought-provoking, and not necessarily in a good way. Again, you know, my mind just doesn't want to go there. It, it seems wrong. Um, so, of course, this would certainly be an uncomfortable thing to codify in doctrine. Just imagine, for instance, that you're Joseph. Let's make you the Catholic Joseph. Are you even allowed to touch your wife? Can you kiss her? How far is too far? Again, extremely uncomfortable territory. And the Catholic Joseph is revered for very good reasons. Although I don't many, I don't believe a whole lot of people think about just how admirable the Catholic version of Joseph is. And it's not thought about because for good reason, people just don't want to go there. Joseph bore the gossip of people regarding his wife's baby. And the Catholic version of Joseph lived a lifetime with Mary, who I'm sure was quite attractive. And even if she wasn't physically attractive, um, I mean, who knows, really? But let, let's even say she wasn't. Any woman who is that pious and that kind and that wonderful and all those things that woman would be irresistible. More so, the more you got to know her. However, Joseph had to hang back. And Joseph battled that for a lifetime in his own house. And it's not like he could take another wife or anything. So we have a Catholic Joseph who is a genuine hero, an alpha superhero of chastity and abstinence. So the Protestant Joseph, he's merely a good man. The Catholic Joseph is a hero and a saint. But let's move on to the Islamic Joseph. The Islamic Joseph is an impossibility because the Islamic sensibility and Islamic law is not very bullish, so to speak. It is not confident in the possibility of male self-restraint, not nearly to the level you would see, say, in the Catholic Church with its celibate clergy. Now, you see that sensibility in conservative, conservative Islamic societies because in some of these places, men can't even be trusted to see females, let alone touch them, let alone marry them and be trusted to never do anything with her. So the Islamic Mary, the pure, ever-Virgin Mary, mother of Jesus, she does not get a husband. Joseph is 
out of the picture. And that certainly makes a nine-month pregnancy a lot more difficult, both in the material sense and in the social sense. Now, in the Islamic story, this wasn't necessarily a nine-month pregnancy. It, it kind of seems like it was more of an instant thing. But what I'm trying to convey here is that Mary does not have a husband. She is entirely reliant on God, which is actually quite beautiful in a way. Her experience birthing Jesus actually reminds me of the Islamic story of Hagar. I mean, really kind of the biblical story of Hagar too, but how God took care of her in the desert. And really, Mary was in a social desert on her own and dealing with the nasty gossip that would inevitably surround her in this situation and without a husband to back up her story. So she bore all of that. And when the time came to give birth to Jesus, she went off on her own to give birth. So before we get into that more, let me just read you the sort of nativity passage from the Quran. This is from Surah 19, it's the Surah of Mary, verses 22 to 26. So she conceived him and withdrew with him to a remote place. Then the pains of labor drove her to the trunk of a palm tree. She cried, Alas, I wish I had died before this and was a thing long forgotten. So a voice reassured her from below her. Do not grieve. Your Lord has provided a stream at your feet. And shake the trunk of this palm tree toward you. It will drop fresh, ripe dates upon you. So eat and drink and put your heart at ease. But if you see any of the people, say, I have vowed silence to the most compassionate. So I am not talking to anyone today. So Mary goes off to give birth alone. And Mary is understandably overwhelmed physically and mentally. Just take a second to appreciate Mary's situation in this story. She's a virgin living with constant disapproval of her community. And she's alone and yet trying to give birth to a magical child. And Mary is saying, in modern parlance, I wish I could just press fast forward on this whole thing and have it behind me forever. But God hears her. God answers the call. And he provides water and food for Mary. And he's her caretaker in the midst of a callous world that left her alone. Again, this is extremely similar to the story of Hagar who took an ancient Ishmael into the desert. If you wanted to, you could actually just run a thread straight from through Hagar, through Mary, right to Muhammad. Because remember, Hagar, Hagar is basically the mother of the Arabs, a people said to descend from her son Ishmael. That's the tradition. 
Now you have the same motif with Jesus' birth and, and later with Muhammad, sort of. Mary, in the Islamic version, she's not being drugged around the country with Joseph. She's actually alone, just like Hagar. There is no census. There's no shepherds or any of that. An Islamic nativity scene, actually, would be quite simple. There would be Mary, Jesus, and maybe an angel. And this appears to have been a very short pregnancy as well. Uh, in the Quranic version, it seems almost like an instant birth. Mary is almost portrayed as someone who had a mystical experience. Only in this case, that experience made her pregnant and a mother in very short order. Now, Muhammad actually did something similar, although obviously he wouldn't be coming back with a child. You know, Muhammad left his home, he retreated to the caves, and he came home with a message. Just like Mary left home, retreated to an isolated place, and came home with a child. Um, Hagar, in a similar way too. Okay, so you see the major difference between the Islamic and the biblical accounts, right? There is no manger, no magi, no decrees from Caesar, and of course, no Joseph either. In the biblical version, Joseph was many things, and one of those important things was a protector of Mary. Joseph was her shield from scandal, and his job was to legitimize her child in the eyes of the community. And this was no small thing. Remember the Jewish law. If Mary was indeed guilty of fornication or something similar, she could be stoned. And obviously, single motherhood was not really a thing in the first century. But in the Islamic version, that's precisely what we have. And you can imagine what the community would think of that. And where we left off in the Quranic narrative, Mary wasn't even supposed to talk to anyone. You know, God gave her pretty explicit instructions. So who was going to defend Mary? Remember, Joseph's not there. So who would speak for her? Well, in the desert, God was the one taking care of Mary. And once she came back with a child, who would speak for her? Well, God would be a good guess. Um, and from the Christian perspective, you could say God did. But from the Islamic perspective, her defender went from God to Jesus. Literally, actually. Jesus would speak for Mary. And no, this is definitely not in the Bible. Uh, here's the Quran, Surah 19, verses 27 to 33. Then she returned to her people, carrying him, him being Jesus. They said in shock, Oh, Mary, you have done a horrible thing. Oh, sister of Aaron. Your father was not an indecent man, nor was your mother unchaste. So she pointed to the baby. 
they exclaimed, how can we talk to someone who was an infant in the cradle? And then Jesus declared, I am truly a servant of Allah. He has destined me to be given the scripture and to be a prophet. He has made me a blessing wherever I go and bid me to establish prayer and give alms tax as long as I live and to be kind to my mother. He has not made me arrogant or defiant. Peace be upon me the day I was born, the day I die, and the day I will be raised back to life. Now, I should clarify that traditionally, Islamic scholars do not see that last part as a reference to Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. You know, the day I was born, the day I die, and the day I will be raised back to life. Because, again, that, as they would explain it, that happens to everybody. Everyone is born, everyone dies, and everyone will be raised back to life on the day of judgment. And, and focusing on that last line, I, I really, I love that. That last part, peace be upon me. It's just not something you usually say to yourself. It's, it's like an old cartoon where Jesus is singing Christmas carols and saying me instead of Jesus. But there is plenty to unpack here. The people, Mary's people, they say she has done a horrible thing. Of course, we know what that is, obviously. But then they reference her ancestors to sort of accent their shock at this scandal. And they call her Sister of Aaron. Sister of Aaron. What does that mean? There are plenty of interpretations. Um, it could be an actual family line being claimed here, or maybe just a reference to her being like Aaron. You know, remember Aaron, the first priest. So in the Islamic story, Mary is almost like a priest at this point, kind of like a daughter to Zechariah, even more so. And Zechariah was a priest. I think the odds are that's the reference. Um, in the Islamic story, she's as much a sister of Aaron as Aaron's actual sister back from the day, you know, named Miriam. Again, is the link through the priesthood or actual family? We don't know. And then there's actually a less charitable interpretation I've seen because Miriam, for those who don't know, Miriam, that's Aaron's sister, right? But Miriam is also the name of Mary in Arabic. Um, they're pretty much the same. Now, remember that the Surah of Mary is not really called the Surah of Mary in Arabic. It's called the Surah of Miriam. So we have Miriam and Miriam. Is it possible that this was confused in an Arabic context? There's no way to know for sure. Um, but again, the idea is that whoever, <laughs> you know, if you're a non-Muslim reading the Quran, whoever you think the author of the Quran was, even being Muhammad, that Mary and Miriam were being confused here. Maybe. Um, I mean, it is possible. The Arabs of the time, they're not, they're not exactly scholars of Jewish history. You know, maybe they were just confused when they heard the message, even if it came out right. 
you know, the interpretation of it may have been incorrect, you know, because it wasn't, it wasn't like Muhammad was writing this stuff down. Muhammad was saying it, people would remember it and then write it down. Or just as likely, it was a deliberate play on words. Or even more likely, way more likely, is they were just saying, hey, you come from a good family. You were raised right. How on earth did this happen? And really, I suppose it's not even that important, at least in terms of the story, what this means. Because the important thing is what the community is saying. It's very obvious the community is saying, Mary, what on earth? You're better than this. What happened? And this is when Mary points to her infant son and says, hey, I'm not talking. Talk to the baby. I am so finished with all of this. And amazingly, Jesus speaks from the cradle, confirming the miracle and defending his mother's honor. So we have a Jesus who is performing miracles as an infant, whereas the biblical infant Jesus is more of a passive miracle, at least from the infant's point of view. You know, he wasn't talking to the wise men or anything. So that's an interesting nugget. And while you usually don't look at the Quran as literature, for the most part, you know, you don't really read the Quran as story as you do with the Bible. I think it actually applies here to see it as a story. It's telling a different story than the Bible, but it's hitting on the same thing. You know, from a literature perspective, there's a problem, right? And this is solving the same problem that Joseph was solving in the Bible. And what I mean is, this additional story that is in the Quran but not in the Bible, from a story point of view, this fills the gap left without Joseph. It explains the scandal and how Mary dealt with it. So even from infancy, Jesus himself will be Mary's Joseph. And this story of Jesus speaking as an infant is often traced back to something called the Syriac Infancy Gospel, which is also called the Arabic Infancy Gospel. And it was written by Nestorian Christians a little before or around the time of Muhammad, or maybe even after. Uh, these things are always a bit fuzzy. You have to be extremely humble when coming to definitive conclusions looking at this stuff. It's not necessarily ironclad that everything in the Quran came from some source before it. You know, original work is possible. And really, the reverse can happen too. I mean, the Quran could inspire later stories as well. But this whole idea of the sources. This is actually what I want to focus on next. The sources of all these extra biblical stories of the New Testament characters. What was floating around in Southern Arabia at the time? What did they know as the gospel? 
A quick spoiler alert, it's not what the Greeks or the Romans would have considered to be the gospel. I just mentioned Nestorian Christians. This, at least at the time of Muhammad, Nestorianism was a fairly recent heresy, and it claimed that Jesus had two distinct natures, one human and one divine, which was denying the current orthodoxy of the hypostatic union, meaning Jesus's humanity and divinity were all within the same personhood. And that's basic Christian doctrine. Even today, for almost all Christians, that, that's the thing, hypostatic union. But the Nestorians rejected this. Pretty much any church, then and now, would call the Nestorians heretics. But in Southern Arabia, it's possible, maybe even likely, that at Muhammad's time, they probably would have just been known as Christians. It's similar to the way non-Muslims, for the most part, can't really tell the difference between the Sunnis and the Shias. It's unrealistic that a bunch of pagans would understand the difference between Orthodox Christianity and Nestorianism. Even talking about it today, it seems like a small difference. It's only a heresy because of the massive theological implications of what is being said there. Now, we know that. But would a pagan wandering through the desert at the time understand that? In Arabia, I mean, you know, in this sort of isolated backwater, would a Bedouin get that? Even a Jew in Yathrib, would they get that? I mean, really, it took centuries for Christians to figure this stuff out. Now, this whole area of southern Arabia, at least from a religious perspective, it was as diverse as you could get. It's quite similar, actually, to where I live now in the United States. It, a diverse, pluralistic, religious free-for-all, a factory of heresy and religious creativity and of blasphemy and absurdity as well. And this is the religious world the Quran is referencing when giving its sermons. So when the Quran references something from the New Testament, what exactly is it referencing? We'll get to that. Uh, speculating on what the Quran would consider to be the New Testament and just kind of dig into what is generally considered to be the source of a lot of these things, or should I say the sources? We'll get to that. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.
Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.